in verse 2. He said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, held holy and revered on earth as it is in heaven. Give us daily our bread, food for the morrow. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, who has offended us or done us wrong. And bring us not into temptation, but rescue us from evil. Let's ask the Lord to speak to our hearts and touch our understanding today. Father, we thank you for your word. It is bread. It is life. And we, we need that nourishment this morning. Touch our understanding. God, I feel your presence. I know you have a word for this church. And you want to expand our understanding of your kingdom and know how we fit into it. God, I pray that you would anoint my lips, my words to speak what you want to say. And Lord, that you would anoint our hearts, our ears to hear you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. We are... We've been talking about prayer requests the last few weeks and its relation to the Dead Sea. And if you've been here, you've seen the pictures already. I won't bother to put them up again. But basically, the Dead Sea in Israel, in Palestine, is uh, it's the largest body of water that is a hypersaline lake or hypersaline sea. Uh, very, very concentrated in its salt content and the reason why it's called the Dead Sea is because nothing can live there. It is dead. It is unable to produce life and sustain life because of the high salt content of the water. And most, most uh, sources I read about the Dead Sea suspect that a big contributor to the hypersaline levels of the Dead Sea is the fact that it's so low, it's so deep below sea level that there's no potential for the, for the sea to have tributaries that flow out of it to create a, a more of a balance. Right now, the only tributary that flows into the sea is the Jordan River uh, coming from the Sea of Galilee, way, way north in, in that region of, of the world. And, and it only has one in-source. It flows into the Dead Sea, and, and because of that source flowing in, the, the heat of that region evaporates most of the water, and all that's left is the mineral. There's no way for it to flow out. There's no outsource of the sea. And so, like our prayer lives, if there is only an inflow to our lives in prayer, our prayer life, our life in Christ can become dead, if you will. And I, I draw the analogy here that if, if our prayer request consists of only me, myself, and my family, and I'm not, I'm not praying what the Lord has asked me to pray for along with the inflow, then my life can quickly dry up and become more or less like a Dead Sea prayer life. It's, it's very important that, that our prayer life, you, know, you, you might ask yourself this question, and this might prick a little. It, it does me. If God answered every one of your prayer requests this week, how many people would be saved? How many nations would be affected? What, what parts of this city would be transformed if God specifically answered to the T and even exceeded your prayer requests this week? How many of those requests would equal in souls saved or the kingdom of God expanded? 
And, 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 and that's not to put anybody on blast here this morning. It's just a, a question for you to reflect on. I sometimes ask myself that, and it helps me, helps me realize, oh, I'm, <laughs> I have a Dead Sea prayer life going on here. It's, a, it's a, you know, my, these bills would be paid, and uh, this, this, this thing would be taken care of, and, and that would be better in my life. But, oh, yeah, I, I didn't really cover some of these other areas of prayer. So, so it's not a, a putting anyone on blast, but just a reminder, hey, let's carve out some outflows in our prayer life. And keep the inflow. Nobody's asking you to dry up the Jordan River and block it up. Oh, God, I can't pray for myself. Pastor said i got to pray for the world today. No, you, you still pray for your needs. The, Jesus tells us to do it. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. God actually cares about the little things in your life. But along with the inflow, make sure you're carving some tributaries that flow out. So we've been talking about the Lord's prayer requests. We have prayer requests, but God has prayer requests too. Jesus asked us to pray for our enemies. We covered that first week we did this series. And then he said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field. That's another prayer request of Jesus. Jesus is asking you to make that part of your regular, regular prayer needs is, 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 is the kingdom of God being advanced. Is someone laboring in the field for the harvest of souls? And then we come to the book of Luke, Jesus' prayer lesson. Many call it the Lord's Prayer. But it's actually the disciples' prayer. It's not really the Lord's Prayer. If you want to read Jesus' priestly prayer, go to the book of John. The end of the book of John, chapters 14 through 17, will, will give you the Lord's Prayer. That's, man, that's, that's a whole nother, that's like getting the excavator out. We have to dig deep for that one. That's a big one. But the disciples' prayer, because it was the disciples who came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Isn't it interesting? The disciples didn't come to him and say, Lord, teach us to do miracles. The disciples didn't come to him and say, Lord, teach us to walk on water. Teach us to preach to the masses. Jesus, teach us to multiply the loaves and the fishes. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. The gospel according to St. Luke could actually be called the gospel according to prayer. Because while the other evangelists record that Jesus was in the Jordan and was being baptized, Luke records that while he was praying after he was baptized, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. The evangelists Matthew and Mark and John record that, the, that Jesus chose the 12 disciples, and Jude, uh, I'm sorry, Luke says that it was after he spent a night in prayer that he chose the 12 disciples. The other Gospels declare that Jesus died on the cross, but Luke is the one who records the things that Jesus prayed while he was on the cross. The other Gospels talk about how Jesus went to the Mount of Transfiguration and was transfigured, but Luke records that it was while he was praying on the mountain that he was transfigured. See, there's nothing more transfiguring than prayer. There's nothing that will change you more than prayer. And Luke records that Jesus was a man of prayer. The only other book in the Bible that records the word prayer more than Luke is the book of Acts, which, by the way, was written by Luke. 
I think Luke had a thing for prayer. The scriptures say that what the disciples went to bed, but Jesus went to pray, as was his custom. Now, Jesus was the Son of God. He was God manifested in the flesh. Jesus is God's selfie. If you want to see what God looks like, you look at Jesus. The Bible says he is the image of the invisible God. You cannot see God. I know, I know there's pictures out there that show, you know, and the old painted mosaic art of, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's not biblically accurate. You cannot see the Father. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. He hath made Him known. You cannot see the Spirit of God, but you can see Jesus. Jesus is the image of God. He is the, the revelation of the Father. The living, breathing manifestation of the word of God. Jesus is, he is the, the Godhead, the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in him bodily according to Colossians. So if he is all of that, why? Why pray? That's been one of the big questions. If Jesus needed all of that, like if he was all these things, why did he need to pray? Because he was still a man. And the only way a man can communicate with the invisible God is through prayer. If Jesus needed all that time in prayer, and he was the son of God, I mean, hey, we, 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 we can't say we can make it without prayer. We need to pray. You ever find how difficult it is to pray? Because it's, it's counterintuitive. It, it doesn't make intellectual sense. I mean, you know, it makes sense to bow down to an idol and pay homage to a, a, a statue because it's visible. You can see it. You can, you can put your incense in the little holder and, and burn it, and it burns down, and you, you say your recited prayers, and then you move on with life. It, you know, it's, it's a, a spot you go to, and you do your thing, and you leave. That makes sense to the human brain, the, the materialistic brain, but to pray to someone who is not there. Do you know what I found interesting? I re I'm reading this book calling... Um, destroyer of the gods and how the early church was extremely radical to its society. Extremely. Extremely. Like, the way we look at agnostics and atheists is the way the world at the time looked at the church. Because the world at that time was, was steeped in pagan worship. There was the city god there was the country's God, and then there was the house gods. You were obligated to pay homage at every one of those temples as a member of society. You had to worship Rome, Nero. You had to worship the God of your city, and you had to worship in your family shrine every day, the family shrine. So to convert from paganism to Christianity, where there is no temple, the, the church had no church, right? We call this a church. But the church had no church. It had no church. You look in the, the, in, in the early studies of, of early Christianity, there was no building that could house the number of people. They believed that there was somewhere between 50 and 60,000 believers in Jerusalem alone. This is not a, a multi-million metropolis like the GTA. This, you know, the church, there was no building big enough to hold the church 
in the early days. So for, for, for the world at large to look at these Christians who worship a God they could not see, they had no image of God, they had no idol to worship, they had no place to burn incense, there was no... So to the pagans looking at the Christians, they almost looked like they were agnostic or didn't acknowledge the existence of God because it's not like the Christians said, well, you have your gods and we have ours. The Christians emphatically stood up and said, there is no God but Jesus. Jesus is the only God. He is the, the, the God manifested in the flesh. So to convert from this multi-theistic God to Christianity, it was extremely radical. You understand, prayer, prayer puts you in the dimension of, of the reality of who God is. That, that he is, that you're depending on someone you cannot see. That's why it's, the Bible says if you believe in God, you've got to have faith. faith. Faith brings you to the place where you just have to accept that God is, and he rewards those who diligently seek him. So we, we come to the, 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 the hurdle of prayer, right? You get over that hurdle through faith. Faith is believing and trusting your words are heard by God. And when you call on the name of Jesus, faith tells you that he is there to hear your prayers. He is present with you. If you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, then Jesus is always with you. There is no time that Jesus is not there if you have the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you don't have the gift of the Holy Ghost, you can receive it. It's God's Spirit living inside of you. But if you don't have the gift, you can still pray and Jesus hears your prayer. Amen. So the hurdle of prayer is conquered through faith. It's the thing that helps you get over that hurdle of prayer doesn't make sense. But if I look at it through the eyes of faith, then I can trust, whether it makes sense or not, that God is hearing my prayer. But we have another hurdle in the West. We, we do. Our culture in Canada... Um, and I, I'm speaking more or less to, to native Canadian Europeans and people who grew up in this culture for a long time. You may hail from a different culture, and so you might understand what I'm saying, but your home culture is a little different from, from Western culture. And, and I'll explain what I mean. There, there is, uh, in, in, in the West, we are very individualistic. We're very centered on the individual rights, you know? Our, even our government has a charter of bill and rights that talk about the individual. Everyone has the right to pursue certain freedoms and their individual freedoms. Our culture is very individualistic. But the, the, the vast majority of the world, I would say maybe two-thirds of the world, is, is more collective in their culture. There, there is an honor in the collective or the family or the community is more important than the individual. Uh, let, me, let me help you understand this a little bit better by saying for a, a collective culture, uh, a collective culture stresses the importance of community over the rights of each individual person. A collective culture uh, has more sense of unity and selflessness because the independence and personal identity is, is less important. It's more about how this affects the family. How does this affect the city? How does this affect the community? 
For example, those in an individualistic culture here in Canada, we might say, or North America, we might say, uh, someone says, well, describe yourself. And you might say something like, well, I am smart, I am beautiful, I'm handsome, I'm athletic, I'm funny, I have big muscles. You know, you might say something like that. I'm kind. But someone from a collective culture might say more or less, I'm a good parent, I'm a good brother, I contribute to my family, my society, because the, the, the way the brain is trained to believe is it's more important to be part of a community than it is to be an individual. Being dependent on others in, in the individual, uh, individualistic culture is, is slightly embarrassing. You know, as an individual, you want to pull up your own socks pull up your bootstraps, you know, do up your own bootstraps, whatever that expression is, and you just want to get it done yourself. The individual right takes center stage, and people often place a greater emphasis on standing out and being unique, right? Everybody, you ever notice how, and please, teenagers, young people, don't, don't get mad at me for this, but how young people emphasize how they want to be unique, but they end up looking like a bunch of people that are like them, you know? But they, they claim that they're unique in their, in their dress and style. But, you know, it's not exactly unique. It's just a little unique. <laughs> and everybody has a little flair, I know. And everybody, but but that, that, that is, I mean, just look at, look at advertising, right? Have it your way. That's an individualistic culture if I've ever heard one, right? Uh, uh, it's all about you. You know, this, this concept of it, it's you are the center stage. You are important. And, and, and that's just the way it is. Not, there's no right and wrong. It's just the way it is. And that is a hurdle, believe it or not, to prayer. It is. Because the Bible was written from a collectivistic culture. It was written from the culture of family and community is more important than the individual. It, it, the, the, the way, you know, the, the way they might do something, it would bring shame to the family. It would bring disgrace to the family if you did this. Not it's right or wrong, right? It would be it's a disgrace to your family. Uh, I heard of the extreme example of in the collectivistic culture, it's also called the shame-honor culture. Um, and, and, and in this, these cultures, it's... And this is not true for everybody. This is not prescriptive. This is descriptive. So it's describing perhaps an umbrella idea or umbrella understanding. But it's not necessarily wrong for you to cheat on your taxes in a collectivistic culture as long as you don't get caught. And as long as your motives are because you don't want to give that money when you want to give it to your children and supply for your family. So it's okay to cheat on your taxes if you don't get caught. Right? Because if you get caught, it brings shame to the family. It brings, it's not that it's wrong for you, but it brought a disgrace to your home. But your motive, uh, another way to describe it, uh, uh, many, many years ago in the FIFA World Cup, I don't remember what year it was, but France was positioned to win FIFA. They were ready to win the World Cup, and uh, Zadine is the, the soccer player. He, he headbutted one of the other players. And, and, and it cost him the game, essentially what it did. It cost the game for France, and France lost the World Cup over this headbutt. And you, you might ask, well, what did he do it for? But the, later on it found out that the other player insulted his mother and sister. 
And so he headbutted the guy in the chest and knocked him out of the game and disqualified himself. Why did he do that? Because the, it was better to lose the FIFA World Cup and retain the honor of his mother and sister than it was to win the World Cup but allow his mother and sister to go disgraced and defamed by another player. Now, to the individual culture, we go, that's crazy. That's, that's crazy. You would put your career on the line. He never played again in, in World Cup. Like, that was the end of his career. Uh, and, and so you might ask, that you put your career, just because, you know, sticks and stones, man. Come on. Just brush it off. And win the game and then headbutt the guy, right? But, but the culture said, no, honor is more important then my team winning, my family, my collective is more important than even my team winning the World Cup. Now, I'm, I'm spending all this time talking about culture to help you see that the Bible is written from this collectivistic shame-honor perspective. So when you read and you, you hear Jesus, what is Jesus asking the church to pray? Why is this all important, Pastor? This is very fun culture lesson but what does this have to do with prayer jesus asked us to pray the first thing he asked us to pray for was not our needs was not our wants was not our desires was not our concerns but he said pray that my name would be hallowed or lifted up and made holy and my kingdom would come now what again what does that have to do with culture well in our individualistic culture, it's almost a, a, a cheese grater rubbing on your skin to ask a Canadian to accept the reign, the absolute reign of a king over your life for eternity. Because in Canada, North America, we love our democratic system and the illusion of control, right? By that I mean you, you, you have a say you, the illusion is you have a say in democracy. You can go and vote your, your, your convictions, and you can vote for the right person to get in. If they don't get in, at least you put your, you put your oar in. You tried to turn the ship. It didn't turn. You can accept the fact that the government works the way it does, but you, you did your part. With a king, honey, there's no, there's no voting a king in or out. He's in, and his kids are in, and they may, be, they may be entitled, terrible people that are, uh, you know, maniacal and, and crazy and going to destroy the, the nation and lock down every bit of freedom. But they are the king. And uh, you ain't going to change that. You're not going to vote them in. You're not going to vote them out. And so from our individualistic culture, you say, but if there's a king and a kingdom, I have no say. A king is, a, is not a democracy. A kingdom is a, an authority. Now, in, now, I know in our world, you know, there's the, the, the kingdom of, of England and, and all that and the queen of England, but she really has no power to change laws. She's a figurehead kingdom. She's a hail to a bygone age. Her, her, her reign is there in honor, yes, and in, 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 in something, but it's a figurehead. It's a, a, a king that has no authority. And I think in the church, we're okay with God as a king as long as he has no authority. 
We're okay with God as figurehead king. We'll call Jesus our king in Canada, but I don't think we really mean it the way they do perhaps in Oman or, or uh, in, you know, in, in places like uh, Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Atswaniti where there is a real king with real authority that, that still controls the ins and the outs of society and it's his say goes and, well, if you don't like it, you better not make that publicly known. Because our individualistic nature says, I want to be the king of my life because I'm an individual. The collective, see, it's easy for shame honor societies and collectivistic cultures to have a king. It's easier because the, the groundwork of their worldview, the way they view the world, is based on the, the whole is more important than the individual. I may not like the king, but if he's doing a good job for the whole, I can get behind him and support him because the whole is more important than the, than the me. But with our individualistic nature, we have to jump over that hurdle of, I'm actually praying for a king to set up his domain. A kingdom is the king's domain where the king is in charge. Jesus said, pray. My request for you to pray, pray that my kingdom would come. Now, the illusion for us in North America is that we aren't already under a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. Notice what Jesus said, pray my kingdom to come. Well, what does that mean? Why does God's kingdom need to come? Where was it? What happened to God's kingdom? What, isn't God the creator of the universe? Isn't Jesus the word by which all things were created, all things were made? Isn't Jesus the king already? Isn't, I mean, what's going on here? What's, Paul, uh, Jesus is indicating there is another kingdom that is already well established and has been here for a very long time and is in control. And for those, for whatever culture you're in, that kingdom adapts to the culture and, and silently works behind the scenes, but is very much large and in charge. Jesus said it in another part of Luke, Luke chapter 11, verse 18. He said, if Satan be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Jesus indicated that Satan has a kingdom that's already in place and is already standing. And Satan's kingdom is not divided. Satan's kingdom is not disunified. Satan's kingdom is well-oiled. It's working well. It's functioning just like Satan intended it for it to function. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 exposes it a little bit more. Paul says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Paul talked about it in Colossians. He says, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus is basically trying to let you in on a little secret. 
whether you like it or not, your individualistic worldview uh, uh, kind of bristles at the idea of it or not, there is a king over your life, whether you like it or not. The choice you have, the good news is, you get to exit the kingdom you were born in, and you get to get born into a new kingdom with a better king. Because the kingdom you were born into is the kingdom of darkness, Paul called it, the kingdom of Satan. Satan is the king. He is the, he is the puppet master behind the governments, behind the, the, the entertainment systems, behind all of the news. He's behind it all, and he's the one in the background controlling the different various items that flow out from mainstream media. That's what the believer looks at. Paul says it like this in Ephesians. He says, peel back the curtain, folks. You're not fighting against against flesh and blood. You're fighting against spiritual forces that impact the world in a spiritual dimension because there is a spiritual kingdom. You just get the privilege now. Before Jesus, there was no choice. You were in darkness uh, and that was it. But there was a, a, a breaking of the dawn when Jesus was born and the sun began to rise in the east and Jesus is the sun and he began to rise but then he was crucified so they say well the sun went behind the cloud that's okay because uh, though the sorrow may last for the night joy came in the morning on the third day when Jesus rose from the dead and he made a public shame of Satan and all of his power so now Colossians tells us that he's transferred us from darkness the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light I'm just talking about the hurdle we have to, it's important. You, if you're going to pray the disciples' prayer the way Jesus really wants, if you're going to pray it sincerely, and you're sincerely going to say, Jesus, I want you to be a real king in my life and really be in control. And I, I yield the throne of my individualistic culture and upbringing, and I'm praying for your domain to be set up in the earth. Now, another thing you need to do is not compare Jesus' kingship to the kingships of this world. Because while Jesus is a king and kingdoms often have a, a, a comparative feature to them, to the way God operates, every kingdom in this world, I don't care which way you vote, it doesn't matter. Which way you vote, which way you lean, which kingdom you favor, if you favor democracy, theocracy, monarchy, or whatever, uh, doesn't matter which way you favor. As long as human beings are in charge, there's going to be corruption. It, it is. It's just because of our nature. We can't escape it. Our nature brings about sin and, and, and put in the right circumstances. We can, we can poo-poo and shame-shame all the public figures out there, but guess what? If you were in their shoes, with their worldview, facing the things that they face, knowing the things they know that you don't know, you can't say you wouldn't make the same choice. You might. You might not, but you don't know. The point is there's no hope in human government because Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of darkness. It's a kingdom of light. Jesus is not the prince of war. He's not the prince of fighting. He is the prince of peace. You want to know what kind of government he has? It's a wonderful one. 
He's a counselor, meaning he's approachable. He's the mighty God, so he's strong. He's able to handle it. He's the everlasting father. He's always going to be there. He's never going to take a break. He's never going to pass you off to somebody else. He's always going to take up his role as provider and, 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 and gatekeeper in your life. He is the prince of peace. That's his kind of government. So when you pray, thy kingdom come, you are praying for the, the will of God to be done in the earth. Uh, and that means an ending of slavery, an ending of sickness, uh, an ending of, of division and divisiveness. When we see wars uh, and rumors of wars and we pray, God, let your kingdom come. We're praying, God, I pray that your kingdom, your dominion will be set up here on the earth as it is in heaven. Isaiah 62, 6. Why is God asking us to pray for his kingdom to come? Is God not big enough to bring it himself? There is an interesting principle in the Old Testament. Isaiah 62. God says, I've set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, who will never hold their peace day or night. You who are his servants and by your prayers, this is what he said, put the Lord in remembrance of his promises. Keep not silence. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her praise in the earth. He's saying, weigh me down with the responsibility of keeping my word. Remind me constantly of the promises I have made. God gives you the privilege to be his Remembrancer. A remembrancer is an interesting position in the court of a king. It's a real position. The remembrancer was originally a subordinate of the officer of the English exchequer. The office of this great antiquity is the one that holds the place of memorator or rememorator or register, keeper of the register, dispatcher of business. In the, it, it, the, the the point or the, the role of the remembrancer in the courts of English uh, monarchies of time past was to call to remembrance the business that had not yet been completed but was promised to be fulfilled. Oriental kings maintained an officer who was, it was their business to remind the king of the promises which he had made beforehand. He would say to this courtier or to the other but his, and, and, and talked about his business throughout the day. And then at some point of the day, the remembrancer would step forward and say, if it pleases your majesty, you promised to do this and that. It, may it please you to perform your word in honor of your name. And so now the Lord has appointed his church and said, I want you to pray. My kingdom come. My will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does God really need you to remind him? No, but he wants you to be a part of what he's doing in the earth. He's allowing us the privilege. Funny, amazing, crazy. The God who created us and created our minds is asking us to remind him of his promises. Is it really for him to remember or is it for us to participate in the, in the relationship of God promised, 
I reminded him and he fulfilled his promise. Therefore, it binds me to him and him to me. And I become a part of him and he becomes a part of me. And his promises are fulfilled because he's asked me to pray. And I pray so he fulfills his promises. It puts me in a cyclical relationship with God. Something that I desperately need every single day. So when Jesus said, pray my prayer requests, my kingdom come. you got to get over the hurdle of prayer. It's by faith. You got to get over the hurdle of a kingdom. He is the king, but he's a good one, and you can trust him to make the right decision about your life. Therefore, he has called you to be his remembrancer, to remind him of the promises he made to this earth, to remind him of the promises where he said, It's not my will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, Isaiah 62 says, Give the Lord no rest until. He completes his work. You understand why Jesus would say prayer is a lot like that woman who, who prayed for her family and the king was an unjust king, but she kept coming back. And the king who was an unjust king answered her request, not because she was had a valid request or because he was a good king, but he got annoyed of her coming into his court every single day and asking for the same thing. So he gave her what she wanted because she was persistent. And so Jesus says it's the same the attitude I want you to have in prayer. Every day pray thy kingdom come. Your will be done God. I don't exactly know what your will is for this city. I don't know exactly what it is your will is for this life or this person that I'm praying for. I can take an educated guess based on your word. You want them to repent. You want them to have the Holy Ghost. You want them to be a, a soul winner themselves. You want them to be healed. I pray for these things God but let your will be done. And let your kingdom come. Smooth the road for the kingdom of God. Can we stand this morning? Your charge this week is to pray God's kingdom to come. He is a